forever. Dog. Everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today, we are joined by actor, comedian, writer, director, drag queen, producer, and one of my very best friends. It's Bendela Krem. Hi, Bendela Krem. Hi, Jinx. Did that sound like how you say it? Yeah. Hi, Jinx. Hi, Hi Jinx. Jinx. Hi, Jinx. <laughs> Do you Hi, have Jinx. a Jinx a Jinx monsoon impression? I really don't. Most people. Oh wait, this is it. It's interrupted. Are way off the mark. It's talking over you. <laughs> Do I talk over you all? <laughs> no, you totally don't. No, I like to joke that I can't get words in edgewise with you, but the reality is that frequently. I barely like that interview we did yesterday. <laughs> that interview we did yesterday where I was like <laughs> you you were it was a 20 minute interview and you were 10 minutes late. So I had to talk for the first 10 minutes and then by the time you got there I was so used to talking that I kept forgetting to even let you answer I'm questions. I'm so embarrassed. I've been pretty damn good about being on time at least for interviews and podcast recordings and things and Yesterday was a doozy. It's <laughs> hard. A 20 Drag minute interview and I was 10 minutes late. Drag is hard, but also like home drag is hard. I was like a phantom in that interview too. Um, home drag is hard. It is, it's really difficult to separate your work and life when they're all intermingled. I mean, artwork and life is already intermingled and then you layer in the pandemic and we're literally working from home. I find that it's difficult to find moments in my life to stop talking about drag and stop talking about work because I feel like when you create the work for yourself, your brain is always kind of thinking about what's going to be my next bit, what's going to be something that's happening in my real life that's going to make its way into my next show. And then once you get me started talking about that, it never ends. Do you feel like it's similar for you? I mean, do you know how hard it is for me not to be talking to you about scheduling right now? <laughs> like all I like it is because we I mean, we're obviously in the throes of um, of creating this our our new tour for this year. And um and it's like that's I mean, we're we're meeting every day and we're talking about this stuff every day. And I have to say that, like, so it is actually so hard for me to switch gears. But at the same time, I'm I'm actually really happy that we have like a contained amount of time where we're like not going to talk about that. I think that's a delightful <laughs> shift for have, us. We have one hour's worth of conversation that's not about our hit show returning to tour uh, this winter. Uh, it's called the Jinx and the Return of the Jinx and Dela Holiday Show Live. Really gives you everything you need to know in that one title. Um, it is going to be really. It's going to be really good. I feel very. I mean, I think it's not that we can't like mention it or whatever because obviously <laughs> we already we should, did. We we did, <laughs> and we're going to, and it's a major part of our lives. But um, but 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 what was I going to say? Um, 
it's nice to be talking about other things between yeah. the two of us. And it's so funny because that is an example of us both being workaholics is that the only way for us to have a friendly conversation that's not about work is we have it's to schedule a podcast yes. recording. <laughs> yeah. So for any of our listeners who don't already know, uh, which I'm sure it's a very small percentage, but we've known each other for... 12 years now. I think that's right. 12 years. And we started collaborating pretty much from the get-go. I know you've told this story countless times. You know, I, I was know actually if- thinking about this ahead of time, though. <laughs> don't you think it would be nice if we didn't tell the story of how we met? Because every <laughs> single interview we've ever de- did, every done, dude, has it always... Up. Hey, dude. Um, <laughs> we always tell that same story. Do you want to? I mean, we could, but... I'll tell the listeners, um, you can find it basically anywhere else, but the very concise version is we both knew about each other through word of mouth, and then one day, Dela came to see me performing at a Starbucks at 4 p.m. for free um, in Seattle, and uh, dropped her business card, and soon after that, we were collaborating because we realized very quickly... um, Due to our shared aesthetic and shared performance styles, our similar performance aesthetics, whatever whatever terminology you want to use, we knew that if we didn't work together as friends, we were going to end up being highly competitive with one another and be frenemies instead. Yeah. So I'm really we- <laughs> proud of us for both making that choice and really sticking to it and really working at it because, you know, it is a challenge to be close friends with somebody who works in your same industry, who is as insanely talented talented as you are. Insanely intalented. But when I tell that story, I just, I want to point out that when I tell that story, I really like to milk the details about yeah. how it was free in the middle of the afternoon, how there were <laughs> 10 folding chairs, how you were changing in one of those bathrooms with the code on the door. <laughs> The code on the door is like a special detail to me. How there was remember. like milk foaming sounds in the background while you were singing. <laughs> and one of my favorite details is it was a Starbucks, but it was called Roy Street Coffee and Tea because it was when Starbucks was trying to blend in with local coffee shops. I don't know if they if any of those like um, secret char- Starbucks still exists, but was that a thing that happened in other places be- besides Seattle, or was that like I don't know. I feel like Seattle is like so snobby about coffee in a good way. I'm snobby about coffee, but you know, <laughs> Starbucks is obviously birthed in Seattle, and Seattle is fully turned on it now that it's like big. <laughs> Seattle loves to play the elitist game. Um, I mean, me really... too. To get it really just rolled over and took it when it came to gentrification. Like, Portland has been gentrified but has fought back. Seattle just kind of lubed up and put its ass in the air and said, gentrify me, daddy. (laughs) Seriously. And it's like, I mean, I think San Francisco is sort of the closest gentrification equivalent in terms of what the culture was like and how it's changed. But San Francisco, it happened over the course of like a decade. And in Seattle, it happened in like six months. Yeah, I left for I I left for tour once and then came back and um, Michelle Visage was was in Seattle with me. I tried to take her to three different like shopping spots that I liked. 
they were all gone. And yeah. in one case, the building was gone. Yes, it was the like... city was like leveled <laughs> while we were on an airplane. It was crazy. <laughs> it felt like poltergeist. It felt like I showed up to show her my haunted house and there was just an <laughs> empty lot there. Um... <laughs> now, Dela. Yeah, yes. Um, I know, as your friend, that you are... I think lots of drag queens are obsessed with horror movies, but um, you and I share a special love of horror movies, as in I think we go for the same kind of things in horror movies. Yes. Since it's um, since it's Octoberween while we're recording this, do you have any horror movie recommendations for our listeners? Um, hopefully it'll still be somewhere near Halloween and people will still be in the space. The, the scary movie mood well but give us a quick short list of recommendations yeah i mean my number one is always the same um and i don't care i mean you can air this like at easter and people <laughs> should still watch this um but the haunting the one from 1963 not the terrible remake from like the late 90s early 2000s um is I think the best horror movie ever made in the history of the universe, which I know is bold, but um, <laughs> I, uh, and they've, you know, it's been sort of reimagined countless times. The Haunting of Hill House series that came out like mm-hmm. a few years ago, that was, um, that was also based on the book that The Haunting is based on, which is called The Haunting of Hill House. Anyway, it's just an incredible movie and it, um, and it has, just like these really, really strong lesbian, I can't call them subtexts because they're just texts. It's just like, (laughs) there's a fully, there's a fully, like, you know, they're a little bit, you know, subtle about the, like, they don't just say like, hey, look, a lesbian. But other than that, it's just like this character (laughs) is very- That's the one thing they don't say. Yeah. Hey, look, a lesbian. (laughs) They very much acknowledge it. And then it's, um, you know, and there's just this like big push pull between the protagonist, the female protagonist and this this woman. And, you know, but it's also like a beautiful haunting story about this like crazy- house that's like pulling this woman into the brink of insanity but it's all kind of this lovely metaphor for internalized homophobia but it's also just like a gorgeous movie like the house is so campy it looks like Liberace as a house and it's just (laughs) um and it's beautiful and it's and it's like and it is genuinely scary but like you never see a monster like everything is like sound and camera angles and you're like is is the protagonist going crazy or is there truly a haunting and it just rides that line beautifully well i i've told you before i read the book um and it the book is a beautifully written victorian horror but admittedly kind of boring and and (laughs) (laughs) and ends with a bit of a shrug um but i i i kind of love things that end on a shrug Uh (laughs) well you know i think that the end what it what it doesn't give you is the satisfaction that I think we've gotten very used to in a lot of contemporary media, which is like a definitive answer, you yeah. know? Um, and I like that it doesn't. It leaves you with, with a sense of wondering still, which I enjoy. I... I, I I definitely know that I've been conditioned to expect a definitive answer at the end of films or at least enough clues where it feels pretty like you can pretty much deduce 
what the what the end is, you know, even if they ended on a question or land on a cliffhanger at the end of the film. What I don't like is when I feel like a film just ends with like, well, it's open to the audience to interpret just because they they couldn't figure out how to end their film. Oh, that drives me crazy. When I feel like the filmmaker, yeah, when I feel like the filmmaker doesn't just didn't plan an ending and so they like stopped that makes me <laughs> feel nuts and i don't want to call out the films that i've seen recently that did that but i've seen quite a few i'll it's call a- out one i really enjoyed watching the film the green knight um i really enjoyed watching it now unless you have a history professor's worth of knowledge of the original like King Arthur Green Knight fable from. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you're talking about right now. I don't know the fable. From I don't know the England. thing. <laughs> I don't know the movie you're talking about. I had to watch two different like synopses on the Green Knight just to understand what I had just watched. But it was one of those beautifully shot, beautifully performed films that you just kind of enjoy watching it, even if the entire the entire time you're thinking like, what, what. <laughs> Who's I mean, this witch? Who's this headless girl? <laughs> I went to I went to a fine art school, so I literally just watched hours and hours of like video art, which is, I mean, j- you know, you're just watching people like in black and white, like roll around in like paint <laughs> on the floor, or like sit in a bathtub full of pancakes, staring at a wall, or like it's yeah. That was the same with my art school experience, except it wasn't filmed. It was just watching them do it in classroom. Oh yeah, I did that. I yeah, all of it. We got the full <laughs> shebang. I was in, you know, I was in the performance art classes. I was in the film classes, and then like the video art stuff is like a very specific thing, right? Because it's all about like when home movie technology sort of like came <laughs> to every person, and so it was like this reclamation of like it's Hollywood's not in charge anymore, but. It was this huge overcorrection where people were like, we are going to set us ourselves apart from Hollywood by being as boring as humanly possible. <laughs> it's kind of rough. I mean, some of it's cool, but, you know. Do, do you have an art school presentation or project that you did that you're especially ashamed of? I have one. I was in a group where we tried to do a performance art piece called The Women Museum, and it was me and uh, four or five other female students. And we all played female archetypes. My archetype was the drag queen. And we were just like in a living museum and you watched us interact with each other. And it devolved into some kind of cat fight. I don't know. I don't think I don't think the rhetoric was sound. I don't think our intention was sound. I think it was just a really, really bad project that we half-assed and made it seem like we had put a lot of work into it. But I think about getting into drag on that day and and performing that piece and it makes me really upset with myself as a <laughs> as I look back on my life. First of all, I would like to recognize that our relationship in a nutshell is the fact that you just said, do you have this experience? I have one. Um, I was but... giving you an example. I was giving you an example to build off of. No, I get it. It was good. It was good. Um, I mean, this may shock you, but I was kind I I was kind of a workaholic in <laughs> – I mean, I was very much – 
I don't know that there's actually any projects I did that I feel ashamed of because I was always, you know, art, you know, you go to art school and it is that thing where it is so easy to phone it in because everything's subjective, right? Like, um, so I was oftentimes in classes where people like very clearly, you know, it's like this blank of paper, like here's my blank sheet of paper. Now I'll leave it to the class to interpret it or whatever, <laughs> right? But but I actually was like, I was like meticulous about all of my projects. So it's not that they were all like brilliant. Like I look back and I'm definitely was like, you know, a, a 22 year old or whatever. Um, but when are you, when are you in college? 19? I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, there's nothing that I'm ashamed of, but I definitely, there's stuff that if I were to say it out loud, sounds pretty bad on paper. Like, uh, you know, I definitely did a piece you know, because I was doing drag a lot at the time, and I was always told by my, like, professors and peers that, like, like, I involved drag in all of my work, but everybody was like, well, it's kind of, like, it's sort of lowbrow. It's not, like, high art. It's not fine art, right? And, of course, now it's more universally recognized as just a part of our culture, but that drove me fucking nuts. So I, in as revenge, involved it in absolutely everything, but I... But there was one project, for instance, where I was like, okay, well, I'm going to represent femininity or like the concept of like, a, you know, whatever, uh, adapting femininity as a male person in a very different way. And so I like made a pair of like men's overalls, like very like, you know, like utilitarian looking overalls, but they were maternity overalls. So they had like... <laughs> like space for a big pregnancy belly, but then I wasn't in drag in any other way. And it was just me <laughs> thinking about like, okay, well, like, what is it, you know, like I have, like, what is this relationship to not being able to bear children, but feeling like a feminine person or whatever, you know, and like, and then I actually like, it was a photo project and it was me like wearing those overalls, like on the train and like around <laughs> the city and stuff. Right. So I actually like stand by that project, but when you describe it, it's very art school. <laughs> I, while in art school, wore maternity clothes for um, not projects. You still kind this. of do sometimes. I I like an empire waist. What you love I an say? empire waist. And it looks in, great on you. In my day-to-day -day life, in my out-of-drag life. Dela. Yes. I know you so well. Um, I I wanted some direction for this podcast so we didn't just sit and talk about, you know, fuck all, as the Brits say. Oh, my God. <laughs> you're so obsessed with British people. I have to integrate it into my daily speech because I'm 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 practicing for when my, my husband comes to live with me. I have to be... At yeah, you think there will be too much of a language barrier? <laughs> I, I need to be 10% more British by the time he gets here. Oh, no. But um, I asked our lovely producer, Joseph, um, if he would write out some questions that um, he thinks that the fans want to know about us oh, wow. and our friendship. Some of them are okay. loaded. Some of them are pretty basic. But l l let's, let's have a go at these and see what, see what bubbles up. First That's one, so formal. I feel like I one. should have dressed for this occasion. <laughs> the first one is um, loaded. I'm I'm putting it out there. It's a loaded, it's a loaded like question. A potato. 
Has there been anything that has ever come between our relationship? Uh... I mean, in what sense? I mean, I'm like, you know, if we're getting real, um, <laughs> I I think, you know, our relationship for many years was us really was us really figuring out how to like, like have the most positive relationship we could. You know, I think we we really respected each other. We really liked each other. We really liked working together. But there was a lot of sense of competition. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that. You know, it's not like that was like a thing. That's not like one thing that stood between us. But I do just feel like it was from the get go. We could have gone a couple different ways. And we really worked hard, I think, at getting to the relationship we have. And I'm I am like very proud of that for us because now I think we're just very mutually supportive in a super genuine way. I I would agree. I think there was, you know, (laughs) <laughs> the best way to describe the um, <laughs> the dynamics our relationship has faced is that throughout the years, we've m- mentioned to each other when the other one is currently the Meryl. Because um, <laughs> we're constantly comparing our friendship to Goldie and Meryl in Death Becomes Her. Yes. And there have been times in our friendship where you're the Meryl. I think... The beginning of our friendship for a long time, you were the Meryl. And then there were times where I was the Meryl and we've kind of flipped back and forth. And then it was a huge question of who would play who when we finally started doing the stage version of <laughs> Oh, I know. Of the show. And now it's like we found such a great dynamic um with our show uh Death Become Drag Becomes Her with um <laughs> Peaches Christ, um, that I can't see it any other way. But behind the scenes, we're constantly flipping who's the Meryl and who's the Goldie. Now we're like, we're like Meryl and Meryl in the parent trap. That's it. <laughs> we're Meryl and Meryl cast as that, as cast as Lindsay Lohan. As, he, as in... <laughs> Lindsay Lohan as Haley Mills. <laughs> is that um, that character's name? No, Haley Mills is the original okay. actress from the original parent trap. You love to only know about a reference and not the source. That is like, you love to like listen to a contemporary old timey cover, but not know the original song. Like that's. That's a contemporary old timey cover. That's like just me in a nutshell. Yeah. I'm a contemporary old timey cover. Also, Um, you can edit this out. You can, you can edit this out if, if you want, obviously your call, but there is the time that I slept with your boyfriend. No, we won't edit. I was actually thinking about <laughs> bringing it up, but I didn't know. But it's worth noting, we were in an open relationship, and um, that person is now one of your very, very good friends. It's just kind of the it's nature. Also, it's, it's, it's also the worth... the I, queer community. It is partially <laughs> the nature of the queer community, especially a small community like the queer community in Seattle. But also, it was an incredibly bad idea. I knew it. <laughs> I felt terrible. I apologized profusely, and I uh, still, and I still do. But that's the only. But we moved through the, it in like twenty four hours. Yeah, we did, and it's like the only time anything kind of like non. Well, no, we've you know we've had those personal friend things, especially since you were one of my closest friends during the worst years of my drinking. And you were very, very kind to try your best never to make me feel judged. Um, But you did also at one point say, when you drink, 
you become a monster. And I just think someone who loves you needed to say that to you. And I'm like, aye, aye, mon capitaine. Um, But yeah, we worked through it. And that's a perfect example of like, you know, we had many moments in our friendship where we could have taken the easy way, which would just kind of been taking a step back from each other and kind of decreasing how how present we were in each other's lives. But we always made the choice to work through the hard parts. And now we've like found this really great simpatico energy where we're like two halves of a coin. And and now I just want to do everything like in collaboration with you. I'm kind of like, you know, um, I mean, are you asking me to start co-hosting this podcast? (laughs) I mean, we basically collaborated for my wedding. (laughs) (laughs) That was fun. I was very, I was very honored that you asked me to master of ceremonies. That was really, it was a lovely event. I do love, uh, you said, Yes, absolutely I will. What does a master of ceremonies do at a wedding? And I was like, well, it's a Zoom wedding, so we're going to find our own special little way of doing things. But um, here's a question I think that's also um, (laughs) got some history to it. Do we ever feel one is getting the spotlight more than the other? What is up with it? Like, what are they trying to pull? What are these? Oh, wait, this is Joseph. what I'm is Joseph asking the loaded questions first. Oh my gosh! Now he's like on the spot editing the doc. <laughs> BTS. No, um, Joseph, you made the decisions. You have to stand by them. <laughs> All right. So wait. So Joseph's question is, uh, why do we hate each other? Is that what he said? Do we ever feel like the other one gets the spotlight more? Um, I know. I'll just cop to this, you know, I know, um, and we've talked about it actually, uh, multiple times throughout our friendship, but, um, you know, I did drag race first and with that came, especially being the first from the Northwest and being the first in Seattle and then going back into, like we mentioned, the tight knit, smaller queer community of Seattle. I definitely point blank let it go to my head and it was a it was a you were (laughs) it was oh we were we we knew you were still in there so we stuck with you but man that was a rough moment in time you were still in there it's like no it's fully like an exorcism movie where they're like (laughs) i know my i know my daughter is still rattling around in there somewhere well what I will say is I think I was really good at still presenting the me that I thought I was or the me I wanted to be to the public, which means only really the people closest to me saw the most monstrous side effects. I would agree of, with that. Yeah, of yeah. success. But what I will say is I, you know, now having worked with and met so many of the winners throughout the years, there's just a certain it's it, there's a certain amount of going to your head that oh, winning yeah. drag race just inherently brings with it. And it's part of, it's like a rite of passage. There's got to be a name for that. We've got to like, call, it's like the crown crazies or something. The We've crown like... crazies, the winner's curse. You have to pull yourself back from the brink of it. And I think pretty much every winner has, has experienced some form of that. And I always say that, you know, the way I was able to come back from the brink of the the crown crazies um, was because I kept the people in my life who told me the truth, and I didn't I didn't 
do drag race and then decide to just surround myself with yes people who were going to just, you know, put me in an echo chamber. I had a lot of very close friends, you know, be very honest with me at that time. And it brought me back from the brink of insanity. Which is great. You know, I mean, that says a lot about you that you'd selected so well, because we all, you know, well, it's just, you know, like whatever, we all have these moments where we lose ourselves in some way or another. And we hopefully have cultivated friend friendships that are like honest and, and caring enough to, to hold us, you know, to, to hold us yeah. accountable. Um, but and to remind us who we, who we were, who we are, and who we are meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> are you like, are you reading an embroidered pillow right now? No, that... I was, <laughs> I was looking dead in your eyes. Um, but back to the original question, I would say during that time, I was probably very hard to share a stage with. Whereas nowadays, I think we are very good at. We're very good at sharing a stage. We're very good at taking turns, being the one who's lapping up all the attention. Um, and two drag queens sharing a stage is just a difficult thing, period. You know, like you put two drag queens in one show and it's going to be, a, a, it's always going to be a, a balance and, a, and a, a, an intricate well, dance. <laughs> I mean, it's not always going to be a balance. And that's why I think it's really awesome that we are good at finding that balance. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, of course there's been, you know, I mean, whatever. We we have taken turns being more in like a wider public spotlight, but we have always had the same high opinion of each other's where you know what i mean like we always have our followings and it might be that like you know tv viewers have like a moment of like a wider audience kind of getting excited about us for like the 10 minute attention span that drag race viewers have <laughs> but in the end we both have our followings we both respect each other's work and um and i also think you know, one of the things is we have gotten to the point where we can be honest with each other about like, I'm feeling kind of jealous right now. And I think it's like people feel shame and like they don't want to admit when they're jealous, but it's like we have jealousy sometimes and we just say it, you know, and we, we care about each other. It. So don't know i don't have and i feel like i recently watched um no i know i recently watched your season of all stars um all stars season three and after your time on all stars i feel like you kind of more than your first time on on drag race kind of developed a public persona of being someone who talks openly about mental health issues, being an advocate for mental self-care. Um, but I don't remember if you had like specific moments on All Stars where you talked about those things other than just being you and watching how you deal with conflict and deal with problems and how you really process things before you open up about how you're feeling. And you take a lot of responsibility on yourself to figure out things for yourself before you go running back into a situation. Um, would you agree? Was it more that you led by example than like 
making the claim like I am a person who cares about mental health and mental wellness. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think it was like I knew it was just like a, you know, it had been uh, I don't six years or something, and I just you know I don't know I I knew more about myself. I know myself better, you know, as like as we do as we as we age, but um. I think that it's, I mean, it's funny that you say that because I hadn't really thought about it in quite that respect. But on on my first season, season six, I do talk about having depression. I talk about mental health on mm-hmm. the season. But at the same time on that season, I was terrified, too terrified to really share myself in like mm-hmm. a major way. You know what I mean? And then on All Stars, I went in with a really like, fuck it, let's just like you know, I'm just going to like bring myself fully to this experience in a way where it's like, I think I actually did talk about some of that stuff on set, but it didn't make it to air. But, um, but I just think that was like, you know, partially a phase in my life I'd reached before that, but weirdly, and this is, you know, people ask me constantly about, you know, self-eliminating, um, which is like, does get like tiresome to re-explain over and over again. But there is, um, but I think the more interesting piece of that is that I think I actually discovered a lot about myself and how I wanted to live my life while filming that season. Mm-hmm. Like that moment of realizing, cause I went in, I mean, you know, I was like going nuts with this internal tug of war before I went on all stars about mm-hmm. like, I really want to do this. Like I want to, I want to be a part of this, but I also don't feel good about what the rules are. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't feel right about like condoning this and participating. And when I had that like aha moment where I was like, oh my God, I've totally nailed this whole thing. And now I can say that like, I don't actually agree with the terms of this thing. That was like a aha moment about like many broader points of my life. Like I came home from all stars and like ended shit that had been making me miserable for years and started like redirecting my life. It was like that moment was actually clicked a lot of things in my place into place. And I think a lot of how I've talked about things since then actually stem from some real epiphany that came in those final days of filming. I don't remember epiphany. Did she go far? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I will say as, you know, as a longtime friend of yours, I've always been very impressed by the maturity at which you handle conflicts and special challenges and, uh, you know, I've oftentimes referred to you as my mentor. You're you're in this realm between my peer, my best friend, and also at many times feel like my mentor. You've been my mentor in business. You've been my mentor in, in mental health aspects. And I can say, you know, I say openly these days, uh, it took me way too long to start really digging into my own mental self-care and, you know seeking therapy. And I think a big part of it is someone who's a a perfectionist and a workaholic and a type A personality. Um, I feel like I convinced myself that to seek help for these issues meant I couldn't take care of it on my own. So I was failing in some way like, oh, I should be able, I'm good at everything else. I should be able to be good at being mentally sound as well. And, um, seeking professional help was something that I 
didn't do soon enough, but um, you know, doing it at all is 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 worth it. No matter when you decide to like really dig into your own mental health and really take accountability for your own mental wellness. It's a good time to start at any time. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it and it's and it's an ongoing thing because I talked about depression on season six. People are often and I appear really like right, my character is super positive. And on those seasons of television, like I'm just sort of on a manic high while I'm there participating <laughs> in the show. So I seem really chipper, but people are like, it's so cool that you beat depression. And I'm like, you do you don't. Like that's yeah. not a thing. You navigate it for your whole life and I still get very depressed, but I have gotten a lot better at figuring out that that always ends and not beating myself up for it, which shortens those times of being depressed. And I do think that's really important for people to talk about because I know that artists talking about that. I mean, I remember like um, uh, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. I read an interview with him about like how he just, despite the fact that Soundgarden was so so successful how he just didn't want to get out of bed for like long periods of time and I like that article and I that was you know I was pretty young when I read that and I was like oh my god I'm not broken and I could still have a career you know yeah and so I feel like it's really important that I you know continue that that passing along that that understanding that that this is a common experience and it is something that you can have a good life anyway. Yeah. That's the important thing is when you're in the throes of depression, it's really easy to feel like, okay, well, this is me forever now and life is never going to move again and I'm just stuck. Um, But acknowledging those feelings and sharing those feelings with someone who can help you gain new perspective on those feelings is the way you get unstuck. But of course, it's so hard to self-motivate to do that when you're in the throes of it. But, you know, we all find our own way. I think um, one thing you continually say to me is remember to be kind to yourself, which is um, such a motherly thing to say for to your sister, you know? <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, I mean... You're it's... very much like my older sister who we find out later in life was my, actually my mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I just, like, sister. had you really young. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for sure. But but I do, you know, it's like... Um, uh, I think that it's interesting that you talk about it as mothering because as someone who lost my mother very young, I have had to figure out how to like mother myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so I, uh, you know, when you lose a parent very young or you have like, you know, whether that's, you know, they, they die or bail or whatever. Um, there is a way that that can kind of, uh, you never, you just, you lose that nurturing at a certain point. And so, uh, later in life, you realize like, oh, I have to figure out how to talk to that young me in a way that makes them feel cared for. So I've had to cultivate that language so much for myself. It's actually very easy for me to like spit it out, you know, at other people that I see struggling, but it's not like, excuse me, it's not like some, some easy natural thing that, like, you know what I mean? Like that's years and years Mm -hmm. of work. So yeah. And you are now 40. And that's a lot of years to be working at. That's a lot of years. (laughs) It's really weird to be like a queer 40-year-old person because 
Like what? Like what? I don't know. It's so weird. Do like I don't feel, feel 40. I do feel 40. It's weird. Is it because when we were growing up, I mean, you're 40. I, I just turned 34. So you're not that much older than me. We grew up just on the cusp of the same kind of generational shift, you know. But, but, but real quick, I am not that much older than you is what I think until I'm filtering photos of the two of us together. <laughs> And then I'm mad. Anyway, continue. <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying because of my juvenile tendency to make, um, to make, you know. Oh, no, it's Instagram literally that I'm like, okay, I'll take out these blemishes, these lines, these wrinkles, whatever. And then I'm like, okay, now I'll edit Jinx to be nice. So we both look. And then I'm like, <laughs> well, there's a zit on her forehead. I guess that's, I'll take care <laughs> of that, often I guess. There's zits on my forehead. But you literally zits- don't have any lines on your face. It's infuriating. I, I feel differently, but thank you. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, um, when I was a young queer person, I came out at like 14, between the years of 13 and 15. By 15, I was fully out and already doing drag. Um, I do remember believing what I was told by what few aspects of queer culture that I could get from media. You know, we had queerest folk, um, the ori- not the original, because the original was was British, but the original American one, which was actually shot in Canada. Um, (laughs) The all white, all pretty cast of Queerest Folk um, telling me what it was like to be an aging gay person, you know? So I was like 15 watching these men talk about how their life ends at 30 in the queer community. And I really thought that was real. I really thought, oh, by the time I'm 30, I better have everything figured out because my life as a queer person just comes to a grinding halt. And now here I am at 34 and I'm like, no, my life really just started. Like my 20s were all just like training for how to be an effective person in my 30s. Um. And thank oh, yeah. God I learned those lessons in my 20s, because if I was still working on those things, I don't know if I would have made it to 34. Well, I was a mess in my 20s, and I my 30s got increasingly good as they as they went on. I loved my 30s and you know, I have I have positive I have positive thoughts about my 40s. The my friends were in their 40s sort of um sort of say that same thing, which is that each decade kind of gets better, you know. But um uh, oh God! You said something else that made me think of something else that I wanted to say. Queer as folk, queer representation oh, in media. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I, I was about to say not to get too dark, but fuck it. To get dark, <laughs> like we're talking about this stuff. You know, I, you know, you say that you know talk about this idea of life ending at thirty. Like I literally, as a teenager. I thought about suicide so much. I literally didn't think I was going to live to 30. Like I could not, like I just had it in my head, like kind of hang on till you're 20, something might improve. But like, I did not think that I would make it to the age of 30. So every year past that has felt like bonus time. And Mm -hmm. now I'm like, holy shit, my life is great. And it is just beginning. Like it does feel like I'm just at the beginning of my life. And like all the other stuff, it's like, you know, when you have that mentality, you go into the rest of your life just like, 
there's there's very little to lose. Like this is this is time I didn't expect to have. I'm going to make the most of it, you know. And I think that's that's the flip side of this type of dark stuff that we don't often like to talk about, right? Like the other side of the coin is actually very shiny. That's a really good saying. The other side of the coin is actually very shiny. I just made that up. I'm <laughs> poetic. Um, getting back into some more like you don't want to talk about suicide some more. <laughs> We can talk about suicide as long as you <laughs> no, want. No, 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 no. It's, what do we it's got? your what time. Um, <laughs> it's your time. You're my therapist. <laughs> um, I have one more kind of lifestyle um, bigger question, and then I'll ask a few more of these, like uh, these more like, what's your favorite food questions? But um, <laughs> so you've also been very outspoken um, about trans rights and trans issues. Your partner, your fiance, Gus, is trans. Um, you've had partners in the past who are trans. Um, do you feel like a spokesperson for trans rights? Do you, um, do you, how, how does that work into your public persona? Um, I uh I mean I don't I don't think about myself as you know I'm like I don't know I'm I'm not I'm not an activist I'm not on the front lines I mean an act, I'm an activist in the way that those of us who like speak openly about the things that matter to us even if it's uh you know if there's resistance and those of us who like put that into our art like our activists um but it's just like another thing about my life, much like men- the mental health piece that is like, it's part of my life. It's a big part of my life. And I, I was embarrassed and like felt weird to talk about this stuff for many, many years, you know, and I'm just like done with that, you know, because I, as you said, I have dated predominantly trans men since my early twenties. And, mm-hmm. um, and that has that super that's complicated in a lot of ways because not only is there a lot of um stigma within the cisgendered community around that especially with you know in the gay male community um you know that was a thing that if i you know if if it ever came up that my partner was trans for many years that was a thing that people would would i don't know would would mock or make light of or whatever yeah. um but also within the trans community there are these issues of uh of fetish, fetishization there are issues of people um being attracted to trans people but wanting to do it on like the the down low in a way that's connected to to shame. And I, for many years, felt very afraid of self-identifying as someone who is a, is attracted to trans men because... Trans-amorous. Yes. Well, you know, I, 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 I didn't want to identify that way because um, also I didn't... It, it was kind of... You know, I'm, I'm, whatever. I can't not... It's like, I don't know how not to allude to the term. Um... Right, like we we do not use the word anymore, but uh, mm-hmm. is a very um, was a very common term to describe people who are attracted to trans people, and within the trans community, that was a very very negative thing. And so I was like, 
I don't know how to think about this. And it wasn't that you and I were together when Our Lady J came backstage and I was talking about my my partner who is trans and she goes, oh, I didn't know you were transamorous. And I never heard a positive word mm-hmm. to describe people who yeah. are attracted to trans people. And I'm like, oh my God, let's all talk about this all the time. Because, yeah. you know, when I started talking publicly about my partner being trans, every single show I did touring for like a year, a couple would come up to me, oftentimes a cisgender drag queen with their trans male partner and be like, oh my God, we thought we were the only ones. And it was every city, every city. You were talking about the special, you know, like the extra layers of stigma when you keep zeroing in on our communities. Like, you know, first there's the cisgender community, then the gay male community. And I think another layer is just amongst drag queens. And there's so many stereotypes. There's so many, like, very old, very false stereotypes about drag queens. You know, um, misconceptions of drag queens and their gender identities just for the fact that they do drag. Yeah. And then I remember whenever a drag queen would learn that you were in a relationship with a trans male, they started treating you like a fetishist or they, they immediately made it a fetish thing. And I think that's because there was so many of those internalized stereotypes that even drag queens take on and start to believe for themselves because it's been foisted on them for so long. And I remember that it just like kind of seemed like a does not compute thing for so many of our fellow drag friends. And nowadays I think it's very, very different. A lot of these misconceptions are being broken down and that's because of people openly having conversations about their own experiences and just like you said, you know, finding a word that was positive that wasn't directly associated with fetishization. (laughs) So I think part of the progress that our community is seeing where we're not thinking so much in strict terms of binary and, and, um, you know, like, because I'm this, I'm supposed to be attracted to this, or because I'm a drag queen, I'm supposed to be attracted to you know, straight acting men with giant dicks who wreck my hole every other night, you know? <laughs> like, I feel like that was a stereotype <laughs> that I dealt with as a drag queen. I was like, I'm a drag queen. And now queen, you've just so... embraced it. <laughs> now I've just embraced it. I'm a drag queen, so I have to... I mean, I definitely, as a drag queen and a self-identified trans person, I know that I oftentimes, you Love know... Love getting your hole wrecked. I was going to say went after straight <laughs> acting, straight presenting right. yeah. or by curious men because that fed it fed a certain aspect of my femininity. It validated a certain aspect of my femininity, but it was really me playing into stereotype stereotypes that I didn't even necessarily agree with. And now that I have identified that, it's like I have my partner who is not at all straight acting, not at all like that archetype, but you know, I know where the attraction comes from and I know why I was attracted to like straight skater boys for so long. And I know how to find that validation outside of 
subjecting myself to fetishization. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, it was like same for many, many years. I felt like the more sort of, I mean, not just masculine and straight acting, but like, I mean, like in, in college, mm-hmm. I was like, let's see how many straight guys we can sleep with. You know what I mean? Like, and that was so validating. I was like, if I can get a super masculine straight guy, then that like means something positive about me, which is such negative self-speak as a queer person. It's so much crazy internalized homophobia to like think that that's what makes you like, I don't know, like it gives you credibility. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, it was... It was similar for me as in I slept with a lot of bi-curious or um, straight identified guys in college. But, I mean, it was validating for me and my femininity and um, validating for my own feelings of, you know, like how attractive I found myself. But um, it definitely, like, the the other side of that is you begin to feel like, oh, no one actually loves me. No one actually wants to be with me. They just want to have this experience and then go on. And oftentimes it was like a dirty little secret. And I just reached a point in my life where I was like, I don't feel like I want to be anyone's dirty little secret anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's really isolating. It's really, it's a bummer. It's a bummer, but um, awareness is half the battle. Identifying it is half the battle. And once you identify why you do certain things and repeat certain patterns, then it's least, at least it's like then you can choose to continue doing that in any form. And once it's a choice, it feels very different. It can feel very liberating. You know, when you know, oh, I do this because it gives me this payoff. So here's how I'm going to selectively do that in a way where I gain the benefits from it, but not um, then go into a shame spiral afterward. Yes, yeah. And a lot of that's just about owning your sexuality, sexual revolution, blah, 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 blah. Burning our Uh, (laughs) brass. Burn our bras. If we did that, we'd be. What would we do on stage? Free balling our fake boobs. <laughs> um. Okay, I'm gonna. We're gonna go a little over because you're one of my best friends. You deserve a little bit more time. But I'm gonna ask. Um. What's I don't, the crazy? I'm having fun. I don't want to stop talking. <laughs> I know. Me neither. Um. What's the craziest experience that happened when working together? And this can also go into best and worst tour moments. Uh, I, I, I don't know what, it, what's, where would, I don't know. I, what do you got? What do you got? Do I tell the birthday story? Oh, God, that story is so boring to me, but it's just because (laughs) Gus, it's his favorite, my partner Gus, it's his favorite story and he makes me tell it constantly. So I get very bored. Go for it. I'll, I'll, Um, every time I say a story is boring and somebody else to tell it, I I start interjecting and correcting them constantly. So buckle up. Oh, I know. Um, We're in San Francisco. We're doing, was it Hocum Pocum? Yes. Must have been hokum pokum. Yes. Um, you and I. So and... Be, right because it was <laughs> because it was my first show with Peaches. That was like Peaches Christ, who I had admired for a very long time. Um, that was my first opportunity to work with her, and I was so nervous, and I really wanted to impress her. And early in the rehearsal, it was your birthday, and we were in San Francisco. All our friends were up in Seattle. 
So I organized a birthday thing. Admittedly, I mostly invited people I knew. I thought I was inviting like a ton of mutual friends, but yeah, it was it was like I threw a party with all of my friends for your birthday. I had forgotten that detail. (laughs) Yes, it was very much like that. I only remember it. I only remember it because drunkenly at one point in the night you said. Well, thanks, Jinx, for organizing this birthday party with all your friends. <laughs> no, I, re- I, I mean, I do. I actually do remember that. Now, but, yeah, um, but while you were on your birthday tear, you ended up um, bringing home a go-go dancer. Well, we thought he was a go-go dancer. Turns out he was just someone at the club in his underwear. <laughs> I'd sort of like to clarify that I was a very talented drunk. I'll I'll put it that way at this point in my life. And I feel like I do not actually party like that anymore. Um, but yeah, yes. I don't remember the last time I partied with you like that. But you are a very talented drunk. You have lots of tricks to kind of hide how drunk you are. One is maintaining I don't eye think, contact. I don't think that's really true. I don't really get that drunk anymore. But I used to drink like a monster. Like and it I was, was very good We both good at did. Hi- we used to drink it. like it was our job. Yes. And one of my favorite drunk moments of you was you were trying to plug a... a plug the audio jack into a laptop but you yes. wouldn't break eye contact with me because that would show how drunk you were well you didn't realize i was drunk the way you told it to me the next day was that you did not realize i was drunk because i was talking to you fully coherently making like not breaking eye contact and then you looked down at my hand and saw that i was like trying to plug this thing into the stereo hole and not just missing the hole but missing the full stereo <laughs> For like a solid five minutes. And then another point, I was pulling the same trick. Again, this is just hearsay. This is what you told me the next day. But I was pulling the same trick. My face said I was fine. And then you looked down and I was trying to pour Maker's Mark into a glass in my hand. And I was just pouring it all over the floor. <laughs> um. So this night on your birthday, you bring um, who we think is a go-go dancer back to the Airbnb. Um, y'all have some crazy we assume well, you're having he was, crazy he was he was dancing he was dancing in his underwear on the bar like of course he yeah. was a go-go dancer um we assume you're having crazy loud sex but really he's dancing around your bedroom and putting on makeup and yeah. <laughs> um fully having his own it wasn't what <laughs> journey I and it would be. and then um and then the next day we're at rehearsal you're hungover and he shows up at the rehearsal Still just in underwear. And then we okay, realized, is, oh, he wasn't a go-go too dancer. abbreviated. <laughs> he was just, <laughs> he wasn't a go-go dancer. He was just someone who only wears underwear. He was just, he, he was just like, uh, you know, he was just like, yes, it was, it turned out he was not a go-go dancer at the place. And the next day I was so cripplingly, first of all, there were a lot of <laughs> details to the evening, like our, our friend Kenny, who I love very much and who has been your friend forever and worked as your assistant and, and helps you book things and does all everything in your life. Um, but uh, Kenny was so mad at me because <laughs> the next morning there was somehow in my bedroom at the Airbnb, there was lipstick all over the ceiling. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah. And like he this was go-go dancer on the bed, drawing on the ceiling. With this supposed lipstick. go-go dancer had also decided to take a shower and shave his entire body in the middle of the night with Kenny's razors. Yeah. Which Kenny is, was so mad. It can feel you can feel violated when someone uses your razor, especially um, yeah. to shave their entire body. Yeah. Um <laughs> Okay, but so then the next day. 
I was so cripplingly hungover and I wanted to impress Peaches so much because this was our first rehearsal together, but I could barely see straight, let alone hit the blocking, let alone know my lines. And I was already like so embarrassed and trying to hide how hungover I was. And then that's when this crazy drug addled (laughs) naked man walks into rehearsal and Peaches is just looking at me with that slack-jawed look of disdain that she gives. <laughs> She's and famous for it. I thought I was just like, we're never going to work together again. She hates me so much. And the other thing was that it, Peaches' mom was there at rehearsal. <laughs> Diane! And who I love, and now we have a wonderful relationship, but she like was so like you know genuinely concerned but also like what the (laughs) fuck is going on with this person but for years every time i saw her she would walk up to me put her hand on my shoulder lock eyes and say are you making good choices (laughs) (laughs) i i I feel it's worth um noting now that you are I mean, that was so uncharacteristic for you at the time. It, you know, like we we had plenty of drunken nights um, together. Uh, it's amazing we never ended up in the same orgy. Um, <laughs> um, this is in a this is <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories. <laughs> besides that last one, is we went to we were out drinking one night in full drag. We went to a house party together. Um, I passed out, and you thought I left. So I was just left at this house party <gasps> of complete strangers that. to me. And I fell asleep in full drag on this couch, and then and you took off that evening. And I woke up the next morning. Um, I woke up to the sound of a heel falling off of my foot and hitting the floor. Oh, my God. Um, I'd forgotten this. In full drag, I wake up and realize... I don't know where I am. I don't know these people who's. This was in Seattle, right? In Seattle. Yeah, yeah. But luckily, when I left the apartment building, I was only a couple blocks away from my house. And (laughs) the 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 troubling thing, though, was that I had um a a a music rehearsal thirty minutes later. Like I woke up at nine. At nine thirty, I had music rehearsal, and my friend who was picking me up like texted and said, "I'm on the way," and I'm in full drag. And then there was no time to get out of drag and, like, make myself look not hungover. So I stayed in drag, went to this music rehearsal in full (laughs) drag. No one knew why. Um, I was going to be performing the song, you know, like, at the showcase. I was going to be performing it in drag. So I said that I needed to come in full drag for the rehearsal. Everyone was baffled by it. I looked like a vampire queen. Um, (laughs) We had some we had some crazy times back in Seattle. We really and now did. and now look at us. We're old. We're old. I'm sober, and I, like now our now our conversations and our crazy our crazy times consist of like <laughs> like creative problem solving for um, the pets in our houses. Yeah, and, and how we're gonna work pet pet furniture into our decor. <laughs> There's no room. I want that hanging chair, that little that vintage basket hanging chair, but it can't fit it anywhere in my house. It's too much <laughs> furniture. Um, I, I will say that I'm so incredibly proud of you for your sobriety. I really just think it's like amazing. And I know that that was like a really big thing for you. And I'm just like consistently impressed that you were, that you did that, that you've stuck by it. I mean, I feel very blessed in that I stopped <laughs> drinking so much because I just got 
too tired and old <laughs> to keep drinking like that. Um, but uh, but you know you you had to make a really conscious effort, and I just I just think it's incredible. I don't know that if I was um, I was dealing with the with the same situation, you know, I don't I don't know that I would have been that strong. And I'm I'm just I think it's amazing. Well, thank you. And your your um. <laughs> your kind words about it mean especially a lot to me since um you were with me um during one of my worst moments of my drinking life ball. which was we were on the life ball oh my plane. god this is the story that i really wanted to tell at the top but then go i was ahead, like go ahead no 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 no, no. i like you you go for it i just was no, like no, no. maybe you she doesn't it, want and it then to I, and you tell it and then i'm gonna wrap up this podcast okay i don't know that i remember all the all the details specifically, but it was just that we were on that plane to to Life Ball, which is and um, for people who don't know, you all the performers and all the um like the big names attending Life Ball go together from America on this one plane and then land, and then there is a red carpet waiting for you when you get off the plane. So everyone yeah. has to get all dolled up and With red like carpet ready blitz, on the yeah. plane. And the plane is so crazy because it's like a mandala pour bouncing around naked with champagne, like on, you know what I mean? Like, to, like, uh, I like Roseanne was on the plane. Paula Abdul was on the plane. It was like so Kelly weird. Osborne, I think, um, Courtney Love, and everyone's just, Courtney Love. Yeah, I think she was on the plane too. Really. I missed that. Am Are I you sure that, that year? I think that was your reflection. But I, <laughs> because, okay, so, because we all have to get, <laughs> we all have to get into drag, like those of us who are drag queens, like Roseanne didn't have to get into drag, but those of us who had to, had to get into drag on this flight. And so we're literally in just like an airplane bathroom trying to do full makeup or like having our mirror set up on our tray table. And, um, you know, I think I was sitting next to Shangela and we were both figure it was I and that was, was my last memory of the evening was you and me and Shangela in a bathroom and I was almost ready. That's the that's the thing that really okay. kicks me in the so, pants. Is that I was almost ready. <laughs> we were we were all like celebrating on the pain but on the plane, but you were you were hitting it hard. And you um yeah, it was like by the time the plane landed. You could, you were like not super skilled at talking and or walking. Um, <laughs> and while your face had started while you were still coherent, by the time the final layers happened, like the lipstick and the liner, it was absolutely, it was absolutely the end of Death Becomes Her. It was absolutely <laughs> just like these smears and smudges that were vaguely related to a sense memory of where your mouth hole was. Like, it, you know, just like muscle memory of putting on mascara. Um, and so we get, like, we land, we get off the plane. It's like, it was, you know, I had never been in a situation like that. It's this huge, long red carpet. It is all this media and photos being taken, interviews, cameras, all these things. And I look behind me and you are being helped down the stairs of the plane, literally looking like Meryl in that final scene, trying <laughs> to make her way out of the funeral. And it was, I think there was like, you started get somebody started interviewing you. And I think you were nodding off instead of answering the questions. And I think I had to like grab you under the shoulder and like haul you off the red carpet. 
Well, look at you now. And the lesson there, folks, is um, if you're on antidepressants and they tell you not to mix with alcohol, do not mix it with alcohol. It's it's sad I had to learn it. I had to learn that lesson in such a such a high stakes way. Luckily, no footage uh, has ever surfaced. Um, I I really got a freebie there. Um, The. The worst part of the whole story is I had I recently deleted it. I've reached a point in my sobriety where I was like, I'm going to delete this video and and let go of the past and forgive myself because I had so much shame around that event. And but I I had to just play it off like a joke. I had to just joke about it with everyone because that was the only way to get through it. But I had this like 40 minute video of I was using my phone as a mirror to try to put my lashes on. And it's a 40-minute video of just trying to put my lashes on in a blackout. And I keep putting them on wrong and then taking them off and putting them on again. And by the end, that's why my eyes were just big black circles. You have never told me this. I can't believe that I never got to see this video before it was erased from the couldn't. I couldn't really watch it. It made me so upset to watch it, but I kept it on my phone as a reminder of like why I'm quitting drinking. And I recently deleted it because I felt like carrying it around with me was just carrying around like a dead body that I didn't want people totally, to Totally, that see. makes sense. Yeah, but, you know, and I, and, you know, I think that had you not made such incredible positive change in your life, I certainly wouldn't be talking about this, you know, the, <laughs> like, the, the, like, obviously there's, the tragedy of this is diffused by the fact that it is in the end a story of triumph so we can kind of laugh about the details <laughs> I mean, right and it's it's funny i mean it's funny it didn't feel funny at the time it felt very you know eye opening but it is also funny to just know that i got off this plane stepped onto a red carpet looking fully like a corpse and wild. coming just barely coming out of a blackout but you know hunting's dangerous the questions that I ask everyone on my podcast at the end of the episode. Answer them however you like. Who is your celebrity crush today? Oh my god. Why don't I have an immediate answer to that? I don't know. Who? Maybe it's because you've been working so hard on the show that you haven't been looking at I know. Crushes. I'm like, what's media and then I'm like okay well try not today like who have you ever been attracted to I can't remember who have I talked about being oh I know I know um the adult film actor Bo Banks oh yeah Bo Banks is is really something Bo Banks although it's really you know I have to say there's like a different level I feel like you just like called me out in a different way because as soon as you (laughs) right like if I was like Nick Jonas, it's like, oh, okay, you listen to music. But if I'm like Bo Banks, then it's like, you know, suddenly it's like everybody's picturing me. Oh my gosh. With Instagram, it. you don't have to you don't have to be a porn star fan to know about porn stars. And you okay, let's be yourself, real. Really. Let's be real. Who <laughs> no. just follows a porn star on Instagram? Oh my god, I follow constant porn stars. I'm constantly following porn stars. I see a porn I like, I go follow the porn stars. Yeah, no, I'm saying that who is who is following a porn star on Instagram without seeing their porn? <laughs> 
like whether whether or not you saw the porn first, you don't go check it out later if you're following a porn star. Listen, there's nothing wrong with le- enjoying the adult arts. Oh no, uh, God, no! I like I celebrate that in a major way. I mean, I think like God bless, God bless. Oh my God, my mic. Um, God bless <laughs> Bo Banks and 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 all the adult film stars who like, man, oh man, got us through quarantine. If Absolutely. not our entire lives beforehand. <laughs> I mean, Nick- tr- like if you're living, if you're like stuck in a room with your partner for, you know, 18 months, it doesn't mean your sex life is declining, but you, you know, sometimes you got to fill in the gaps. It takes, it takes a little more butter to get back in the frying pan. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say my celebrity crush. Hold on. I have to look it up real quick. Uh, okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one who didn't know their celebrity crush. <laughs> no, I come up with a new one every every time. Okay, my um, celebrity crush that I'm going to name drop today is Alan Kayser, who played Bubba Higgins on Mama's Family. He was, he was um, I don't know if I've used this one before, but he was a sex god to me when I was a, a small, a small person, a small human being watching Mama's Family at 6 a.m. every morning when I got You've ready for school. You've never mentioned this to me. Um, actually, though, I will just say real quick that somebody who I really have a huge crush on is Manny Jacinto, who was in the last. Oh. He was just in Seven Perfect Strangers, but um, but he's from the good place before that is how I know him. And he plays Jason Mendoza, like the the burnout from Florida. And it is like, I really, I really have an issue with like, just like handsome, like dumb characters. <laughs> like Jason Mendoza are like, I've, it's I've, like my sweet I've spot. I've caught to that as well. Handsome dum-dums. You know, fictional character dum dums um, who have the best hearts. You know, if they were just dum dums, but they're dum dums with the sweetest hearts and the best of intentions, yes, and that exactly. really does it for me. Well, and the performance is so good, and that's hot, and the cheekbones, yeah. and the put it all together, and he's definitely been one of my celebrity crush answers. Um, next question is: Are you spiritual? You know, funny you should ask that, Jinx. Um, I was very spiritual growing up. I um I was raised Unitarian and was part of a Unitarian Universalist youth group, which uh, you know, is essentially non-denominational, but there's a lot of like spiritual ritual. And I really lost touch with that as an adult. And it's something that I've really been trying to reconnect with just kind of even since pandemic started, because I have had a chance to slow down and realize that I'm very you know, I've gotten the analysis down. I've gotten the work down. I do the I do the mental work, but um, but the spiritual piece is something that I've lost touch with. So, um, you know, I had an exorcism recently. I know I told you about that, and yeah, that was cool. I I have noticed you using more. Um, we always, you know, we always preface it in our conversations of this is very hippie woo woo, but I'm going to say it. But I have noticed you using more of your hippie woo woo language lately. Yeah. Um, what is your go to karaoke song? I already know the answer to this. It's Mr. Boombastic. It's Shaggy's Mr. <laughs> Boombastic. It's one of my favorites. I think I'm it's you know, I, it's been a while. I want to do some karaokeing. I remember um I remember a night in Provincetown we were at like a late night karaoke thing. I sang me and Bobby McGee and you sang Mr. Boombastic and we we closed the place down. We It always we, brings we the house down. The roof. Yeah. <laughs> it can't go wrong. 
with Shaggy. You're and you you know what? You're never too drunk to hit the notes. <laughs> Finally, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Um, where can our listeners find you online? I'm sure most of my listeners already follow you because I won't shut up about you, but <laughs> Anything to promote. Hmm. 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 Oh, what about the Jinx and Dela Holiday Show live coming to a theater near you um, this November if you're in the UK and some places in Canada and the US and then December in the US. Well, whatever. We're all over the place. We're all you over and me, the place. baby. Yeah. And this is our third year touring and our fourth consecutive year creating a holiday show. And, yeah. Um. Post-pandemic artistic creation has been a very special challenge, but we're finding our way. And it's a good thing we have three years under the belt um, before before trying to create a show post-pandemic. Because I got to say, though, I am so proud of where we're at with this. Like, I love what we've created this year. I really... And- and Major Scales has really brought it on the music front. Uh-huh. And we're going for some big concepts and for some high payoffs. And I'm excited as well. I just bought a new little um, desk for my laptop so that I can write. We're about to enter into an intensive writing weekend. And I don't want to be stuck in my office the whole time. So I got one of those little like TV trays for your laptop so oh. I can I, I can write in bed. And I got one of those pillows with the arms so I can sit up in bed and be comfortable while I'm writing for hours and hours. I like that you're like, I, I don't want to be stuck in the office, so I'm just going to be bedridden. <laughs> I actually do a lot of my best work in bed. hey Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Ben De La Creme, for being my guest on this super-packed, extra-long episode of hijinks. <laughs> I, Let's I keep going. Let's I didn't tell keep... you, but the the next guest um, uh, had to reschedule in the middle of our conversation. So that's why I was able to have a luxurious and lengthy conversation with you. Wow. I'm really, I'm really honored that you. It was going to that... happen one way or another. <laughs> it really means a lot to me that you um, involuntarily cleared your schedule for this. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. And thank you all so much for listening to Hi Jinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hi Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at The Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. You can follow Benda La Creme at Benda La Creme everywhere <laughs> benda la cram benda la why are you saying it like this? i don't know i know it's like the first time you've ever said my name well i i just don't think a lot of people know that every syllable is capitalized in your name because it's all your name but fortunately when you're looking at something on instagram it's <laughs> it zero difference. but you do have to understand that it's not spelled ben da la <laughs> Bendela Creme. Follow her at Bendela Creme on all your social medias. And I'll see you all next Wednesday for some more hijinks. Forever. To listen to hijinks ad-free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. 
Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social and rate and review Hijinx five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hijinx is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, produced by Big Dipper, editing and sound design by Will Pitts. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.